0: how do you finish a letter to a church that has problems? Or another way to put it would be, how do you finish a letter to an ordinary church? Because a church with problems is an ordinary church. Every local church is made up of real people and real people have problems. We all face challenges of one kind or another. One of the biggest challenges we all face is our own personal sin our pride, our greed, our lust, whatever particular sin problems we struggle with. An ordinary church is made up of people who are not yet what we should be and not yet what we will be one day. And in that sense, the Corinthian church, with all of its issues, is no different from any church. Now, granted, it's probably a bit further down the line than many churches are. Sin has broken out in pretty bold ways in Corinth. We've seen that as we've gone through this letter. We can be thankful if we don't see the same kind of deep divisions and blatant disobedience in this local church that we've been looking at. But no church should ever read this letter and think that could never happen to us. Of course it could. If we get comfortable with sin, if we get lazy about pursuing holiness, of course it could happen to us. So how do you conclude a letter then to an ordinary church? A church that needs to stay alert. A church that needs to grow in maturity. A church that needs constant reminders and help getting its priorities right. How do you finish a letter to a church like that? You encourage that church to invest in eternity. Last week, we finished looking at chapter 15, the long, long chapter on the resurrection. Paul started that chapter by talking about the historical reality of Christ's resurrection. And then as the chapter progressed, he moved on to what Christ's resurrection means for our own future. It means we will be raised too if we belong to Christ. We will be raised to inherit God's imperishable kingdom, his new heavens and earth. And the very last verse of chapter 15, Paul showed how our awareness of that glorious future makes a difference to our lives here and now. He said at the end of chapter 15, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, in the light of all that I've just been talking about, all that's ahead of you, this glorious future that you have, stand firm. Let nothing move you. Always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord, because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. What is Paul saying in that verse? He's saying, invest in eternity. You know where your future lies. You will inherit the imperishable kingdom of God. So give yourselves fully to serving God today. Because that labor will not be wasted. It will contribute to the future. Your labor for God's kingdom will be part of the seed that will later blossom into that glorious kingdom. In chapter 15, Paul showed us these present bodies are like seeds. They will be transformed into resurrection bodies. He told us this present world is the seed that will blossom into the new world. And he told us our work for the Lord is part of the seed that will blossom into his eternal kingdom. Nothing we do for him will ever be lost or wasted. Someone has summed it up by saying right now counts forever. It really does. And having assured us of that in the final section of the letter, Paul gives the Corinthians some direction. He shows how they can invest well in eternity. In the original text of the New Testament, there were no chapter divisions. There weren't even any verse divisions. So the first readers of this letter heard chapter 16, verse 1, just flow straight on after the end of chapter 15. And there's no doubt, as Paul writes these final verses, he has chapter 15, verse 58, in his mind. In the verses we're about to read, he again mentions the work of the Lord. And he repeats the call to stand firm. So Paul's not just throwing in a few details about church business. That's what, that's what we might think about this chapter. Paul is actually showing these believers how to apply chapter 15, verse 58. So let's read his, his advice to making eternal investments. If you haven't found it yet, it's chapter Uh, 16 of 1 Corinthians, page 1157, in the large print Bibles, 1790. Now, about the collection for the Lord's people. Do what I told the Galatian churches to do. On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. Then when I arrive, I will give letters of introduction to the man you approve and send them with your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable for me to go also, they will accompany me. After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia. Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me. And there are many who oppose me. When Timothy comes, see to it that he has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. Send him on his way in peace so that he may return to me. I'm expecting him along with the brothers. Now about our brother Apollos. I strongly urged him to go to you with the brothers he was quite unwilling to go now, but he will go when he has the opportunity. Be on your guard. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous. Be strong. Do everything in love. You know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and they have devoted themselves to the service of the Lord's people. I urge you, brothers and sisters, to submit to such people. And to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. I was glad when Stephanus, Fortunatus and Achaicus arrived. Because they have supplied what was lacking from you. For they refreshed my spirit. And yours also. Such men deserve recognition. The churches in the province of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Priscilla greet you warmly in the Lord. And so does the church that meets at their house. All the brothers and sisters here send you greetings. Greet one another with a holy kiss. I, Paul, write this greeting in my own hand. If anyone does not love the Lord, let that person be cursed. Come, Lord. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you. My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Amen. This is God's word. And yes... It is geared to the specifics of Paul's own plans and his circumstances. It's geared to the specific situation in Corinth. But there are some pretty clear principles here. Paul shows us in this chapter three ways to invest in eternity. First, he says, invest your money in God's kingdom. We need to look at the specifics here before we see how we might apply this to ourselves. In verse 1, Paul mentions the collection for the Lord's people. So it's something the Corinthians are already aware of. Paul doesn't have to explain it. And in fact, this is not the only place the collection is mentioned in the New Testament. At this time, the churches in Jerusalem uh, were suffering severe economic problems. They were going through difficulties. And as Paul travels around other places, he has organized a collection from those various churches to help out the Christians in Jerusalem. You'll notice in verse 1, he says the churches in Galatia are also contributing to this. Now, at one obvious level, the purpose of this collection is to send funds to the city in Jerusalem. In verse 3, Paul confirms that's where this gift is going to go. But the collection is significant in another way as well. The Christians in Jerusalem were mostly from a Jewish background. In other places, the Christians were mostly Gentiles. They were non-Jews. So this collection actually is a big symbol of the unity of the church. That's church with a capital C. Wherever Christians live whatever their background might be, they are united in Christ. They are part of the one church of Christ. And so every local church with a small c, every local church has to be concerned with how things are going for their brothers and sisters in the wider church. This collection that's organized by Paul has the aim of helping one struggling local church. And it also has the aim of helping all the churches see their unity in Christ. And we always need these kind of perspective widening opportunities. It's important that we never get so narrowly focused on our own little corner of the world that we forget we're part of a worldwide family. We need to find ways to keep ourselves looking outwards, and that's part of what Paul is doing. Then look in verse 2, how Paul gives directions for how to contribute to this collection. He says, On the first day of every week, each one of you should set aside a sum of money in keeping with your income, saving it up, so that when I come, no collections will have to be made. The first day of the week is Sunday, That was the day Jesus rose from the dead, and it was the day Jesus' followers chose to meet together, to commemorate his resurrection. And Paul says, when they meet each week, each person is to set aside a sum of money. In other words, they're to put it in the collection at church. If he was just talking about setting it aside at home, it wouldn't matter what day they did it. They're to set it aside each week in the church, and then when Paul comes, he will not be in the awkward position of trying to stir up a big one-off collection. The money will have been gathered already through regular giving week by week. That's a very good principle. Regular planned giving is more effective in the long run than just giving emotionally in response to a big appeal. Now, obviously, giving out of an emotional response is fine. It's good. But over the long haul, we will give more if we commit to giving regularly, no matter how we feel that particular week. And by collecting this on the first day of the week, as the Christians are met together, that underlines that giving actually is part of our worship. And that's why as a church church, we always include an opportunity to give during this time of worship on a Sunday. I realize it may be the case a lot of you actually give by direct debit. But when we pause in our service to do this together, we're all reminded every week that how we use our money is part of our worship. How much should each person give? Well, Paul says each person is to give in keeping with their income. Literally, he says, as you may prosper. Not many of these Christians would have had a predictable income like most of us do. It would have varied from week to week. And Paul takes that into account. They're to give as they're able to give each week. But notice, they are all to give something, Paul says. In verse 2, each one of you should contribute. That's very significant if we can remember that not many of these believers are well off. A good number of them would have been slaves. And Paul does not tell them how much to give. Clearly he expects those who have prospered a lot will give a lot. Those who have not prospered very much will not be expected to give as much. But he does expect everyone to give something. we often wonder, what am I supposed to give? But according to the New Testament, that's the wrong question. The question is, what can I give? When Jesus watched the widow put her two very small copper coins into the temple collection box, Jesus may well have been looking at the smallest contribution of the day in terms of its amount. But what did he say? He said to his disciples, looking at the widow, she put in more than all the others. Why? Because out of her poverty, she put in all she had to live on. Jesus didn't measure her giving by some percentage. He measured it by what she had. And amazingly, when that lady had sat down to look at what she could give, she decided she could give everything. There was no law in Judaism requiring her to give 100%. She chose to do it. And she wasn't alone in having that attitude. Listen to what Paul says in another place about the same collection for Jerusalem. He says, uh, writing later on to the Corinthians in his second letter, We want you to know about the grace that God has given the Macedonian churches in the midst of a very severe trial, their overflowing joy and their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and even beyond their ability, entirely on their own. They urgently pleaded with us for the privilege of sharing in this service to the Lord's people. Notice what Paul says, the Macedonian churches could not afford to give, but they gave generously. They were experiencing extreme poverty, and their generosity meant they were actually giving beyond their ability, just like the widow in the temple. So we have to ask ourselves, where does that kind of sacrificial, joyful generosity come from? It comes from the awareness that as we give, we are investing in eternity. It comes from the realization that 100% of what we have has been given to us by God. He has prospered us. Yes, no doubt we worked very hard for it. But he gave us the opportunity to earn. And he gave us the health and the strength and the brains and the drive and the perseverance to take the opportunity we had to earn. Does God expect us to eat and drink? Does he expect us to put a roof over our heads and clothes on our backs? Of course he does. He's a good God. What he gives us is for our good. And it's also for us to invest. So the question becomes, where do I want to invest it? Do I want to invest what I have in treasures and toys and other stuff that's going to end up in a skip someday? Or do I want to invest what I have in God's imperishable kingdom? I'm sure some of us have had the experience of dealing with the accumulated treasures that have been left behind by a dead relative. Except to us, most of their precious treasures aren't really treasures at all. They're just junk at the end of the day. And so as Christians, we're not called to think of our giving in terms of a percentage that is required of us. We're called to think of it as an investment in something that isn't going to end up in the Walsall tip or on eBay if we're really lucky. Through our giving, we can make investments that will last for eternity. A writer called Randy Alcorn says, we cannot take our treasure with us, but we can send it on ahead. How do we do that? We do it by considering what we can give. And if you want to figure, certainly start with 10%. If you're not used to giving, work your way towards that. But don't think of that as a limit. You are allowed to invest more in eternity. We all are. In the Old Testament, 10% was mentioned, but it was the baseline There were lots of ways people could give more. So we consider what we can give. We give regularly, not just when our emotions are tugged by some appeal. And we give to God's kingdom. In other words, we either give to support the members of Christ's church or we give to support care and outreach by Christ's church. In Corinth, uh, the individual believers gave to the local church, and the local church then passed it on. Individual giving went through the local church. And it's worth noting how careful Paul is to make sure this is all above board and transparent. Paul is not going to cruise into town, collect the cash, and disappear with it. In fact, it is not going to go through Paul's hands at all the church is going to collect it and in verse 3 man chosen by the corinthian church will then carry the gift all the way to jerusalem paul knows the believers in jerusalem so he will provide letters of introduction or if the corinthians prefer he will go with the man who carry the gift and paul says if it seems advisable for me to go also he means If you Corinthians feel it's advisable, then I'll go as well. What Paul is not going to do is handle the cash himself. If only churches and church leaders had always been so careful to be open and transparent in their handling of money. So here are the principles. Consider what you can give. Be thoughtful about it. Give regularly. And give to a situation where you're confident the money is being handled well. Be wise. I hope that as a church we handle your money in an open and accountable way. Certainly when we make decisions about where to send the money, we try to make sure we're giving to work that is either supporting members of Christ church or supporting care and outreach by Christ church. And those are the ways we try to use the money here as well. When we invest our money like that, we are investing in eternity. We're using our finances to build something that will last forever. Here's a second way we can invest in eternity. Invest your time in God's kingdom. A lot of the things we've just said about money apply to time as well. They're both resources and we get to choose how we invest them. Yes, there are necessary things we must put time into. We have to rest. We have to sleep. We have to wash. and Most of us have to work. But all of us have a certain amount of time that we can invest in what we want. And even when it comes to the time we're working, we do have a choice over the way we approach that time. We'll come back to that. But first look how Paul invests his time. Verse 5, After I go through Macedonia, I will come to you, for I will be going through Macedonia." Perhaps I will stay with you for a while or even spend the winter so that you can help me on my journey wherever I go. For I do not want to see you now and make only a passing visit. I hope to spend some time with you, if the Lord permits. But I will stay on at Ephesus until Pentecost, because a great door for effective work has opened to me, and there are many who oppose me. Paul is not content just to write a letter from a distance. He understands the great value of having face-to-face contact. And so he wants to visit Corinth. And he doesn't want it to be just a perfunctory passing visit. The New Testament shows us just how many churches Paul tried to support and guide. And he's willing to put significant time into that work. He carried out three long and arduous missionary journeys. If you can glance at that map, I know it's small, but you can have some idea of where Paul's travels took him. All the lines on the map represent his various travels. Often journeying for months to return to the churches that he'd planted. Some of the traveling was by ship, but big swathes of it was on foot, plodding along week after week. And Paul's concern was not just with supporting existing churches, he was also taking the good news about Jesus to new people in new areas. He's writing this particular letter from the city of Ephesus. And when he talks in verse 9 about a great door for effective work in Ephesus, He probably means an opportunity to share the good news with people who haven't heard it before. He's talking here not about building up churches, but evangelizing unbelievers. That's where the mention of opposition plays in. So Paul is constantly making an assessment. He has a finite amount of time, and there are more needs and more opportunities than he can meet. So he has to prioritize. He has to choose. And in this case, he will first take the opportunity to do outreach in Ephesus. And then he'll do his best to get to Corinth and help to build up the church that's already there. And you'll notice, just because a situation involves potential danger, Paul doesn't take that as a reason for him to avoid it. He's going to stay on in Ephesus in spite of the many who oppose him there. So when Paul makes his decisions, comfort doesn't seem to be one of his priorities. Now, of course, Paul's situation was unique. Of course it was. For one thing, he was a single man. He didn't have any family responsibilities to factor in that we know of. He also had a particular set of job skills that he could use anywhere he went. He was a tent maker. That's how he supported himself on his first visit to Corinth. And of course, Paul had been specifically commissioned by the risen Lord Jesus to carry the gospel around the known world. So in many ways, Paul was different from us. And yet... In his letters, he often tells Christians to imitate him, to follow his example. And you and I can follow his example here by investing our time in God's kingdom. We need to think carefully about what that means. Certainly, it involves meeting regularly with other Christians for organized times of worship and prayer, Those times are foundational to the Christian life. We will not survive as Christians if we neglect those times. But we mustn't narrow down our idea of investing in the kingdom so it only means time in the church building. Aren't we investing in the kingdom when we visit another Christian who needs support and encouragement? when we go to see them in their home or have them around for a meal or go out with them for the afternoon, isn't that investing in God's kingdom? Isn't that labor in the Lord that will one day blossom into eternal fruit? Who knows how your investment of time in that way could be used to help a particular brother or sister just keep going as a Christian. And if we have a family, as well as trips, as well as games, we can choose to invest time in praying and reading the Bible together. How about the time we can invest in relationships with non-Christians? Not preaching at them, But getting to know them, caring for them personally, showing them the hope that we have for the future, praying that they will come to have that same hope in Christ. Isn't that investing in God's kingdom? And then what about all those hours we spend at work every week? Yes, we are there to work, We're not there to be on-site evangelists. However, if we are Christians, we are God's representative in the situation. And we can choose to invest those work hours for his kingdom. How might we do that? By doing a good job for a start. Being conscientious and trustworthy. Isn't that a start? being respectful to those who are further down the pecking order, not lording it over people who answer to us. And also by showing that we don't live for work, that there are some things we will not do for money, that missing out on a promotion isn't the end of the world for us. And that we will not sacrifice our family for our career. People who are like that will often stand out in the workplace. And sometimes people like that get asked the reason why they're different. And sometimes they have opportunity to give the reason for the hope they have. The way we approach our daily work can make it an investment in God's kingdom. If we do our work to honor Christ, not just for a paycheck or a retirement package, you might be the only Christian your colleagues know. So show them how someone lives when they're living for resurrection day. And finally, a third way to invest in eternity. Do everything in love. That is what ties these final verses together. The command comes in verse 14. Do everything in love. But clustered around that command, we hear about various different people. A lot of names are mentioned. And this will make sense to us if we can remember what we know about the Corinthian church. This is a church being torn apart by rivalry. These people are dividing up, trying to follow the particular leader they think is most impressive. Paul highlighted that right at the beginning in chapter 1. And he returns to it here by mentioning some of the leaders. In verses 10 and 11 he mentions Timothy. A young man who worked with Paul. Back in chapter 4, Paul said he was sending Timothy to Corinth. Timothy's going to get there before Paul does, and he will remind them of the way of life they're called to as Christians. But Paul knows some people in the church are well capable of chewing Timothy up and spitting him out. They're well capable of treating him like a pipsqueak who has no place talking to such wise and mature Christians as they imagine themselves to be. So Paul says to them in verse 10, see to it that Timothy has nothing to fear while he is with you. For he is carrying on the work of the Lord just as I am. No one then should treat him with contempt. In other words, part of doing everything in love means receiving this young minister of the gospel with respect. Swallowing their pride and taking on board what Timothy says to them. We've already seen in verse 9, Paul takes it as a given that ministry to non-believers may lead to persecution. But ministry to Christians should not lead to persecution. Those who minister faithfully to Christians should have nothing to fear from those Christians. Then in verse 12, Paul mentions Apollos. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament, he was a very capable Bible teacher. He had already spent time in the city of Corinth. And chapter 1 said that some people in the church were trying to line up behind Apollos as their favorite leader in opposition to Paul. But notice Paul's own attitude to Apollos. He refuses to see Apollos as a rival. Instead, he calls him in verse 12, our brother Apollos. And far from trying to get Apollos out of the way, Paul has been urging him to go back to Corinth and help the church. But he says, Apollos is quite unwilling to do that for the time being. We're not told why that is. It may be Apollos is just as appalled by the personality wars as Paul is. Maybe he's afraid the divisions would just get worse if he visits the church again. Then down in verse 15, Paul mentions the household of Stephanus. Stephanus is from Corinth. The city is in the region that's called Achaia. He and his household, Paul says, are devoted to the service of the Lord's people. And in verse 16, Paul says to the rest of the church, submit to such people and to everyone who joins in the work and labors at it. So the church is never to be a place where people are competing for the limelight. It's never to be a place where someone who serves well is looked upon as a rival or a threat. No, Paul says, when you find faithful servants of the Lord, be led by those people. Verse 17 explains that Stephanus and two others called Fortunatus and Achaicus have already come to visit Paul and they have supplied what was lacking from Corinth. That's a way of saying to the church in Corinth, I wish you were all with me. That is what's lacking here in Ephesus. But these brothers have been making up for your absence. They have refreshed Paul's spirit. And the church should recognize them for the faithful servants they are. So do you see how Paul here is working from a distance to foster an atmosphere of cooperation, and love. He's working to diffuse the rivalry and encourage love and respect. Notice how after he sends greetings from the believers in Ephesus, the very last line of the letter, Paul finishes with an assurance of his own affection. Verse 24, My love to all of you in Christ Jesus. Paul has said some very stern, confrontational things in this letter. But he has not said those things to beat these people down. He's not said it to put them in their place. He loves them. He doesn't want to see these people lost to sin. He doesn't want to see their fellowship dissolving into bitter little groups trying to score points against each other. With his attitude and this letter and the visit he hopes to make, Paul is showing the way for us. He is doing everything in love. How does he manage that? How does he persevere with these difficult people? They live far enough away He could just forget about them. He could write them off as a lost cause and give his time elsewhere. Why does he keep on working with them? Because he is investing in eternity. He wants to see these men and women safely arrived in God's new heavens and earth. And he knows the love he pours into these people will not be wasted. Back in chapter 13, Paul pointed out to us, love is a foretaste of the future for us as Christians. It is not just our duty here in the present. It is our destiny. Love will never fail. God's new world will be a world of love. So when you and I persevere in love today, we are investing in the future. It all starts with our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. Paul reminds us of that in verse 22. If we don't love Jesus, we are under God's curse. It's desperately serious. We're rebels against God if we don't love Jesus. But when we respond in love to the lover of our souls, That curse is lifted from us. Now we have a Savior who paid for all of our sin on the cross. And we can look forward to his return instead of dreading it or trying not to think about it. We can pray, come, Lord. Come and defeat every last enemy as you've promised to do. Come and put things right. Come and establish your eternal kingdom of righteousness and peace. As Christians, we can pray like that with no fear, only expectation. And as we pray and wait, we can commit to sharing the love He has poured out on us. Christianity is not about trying to summon up love for others. It's not about that. It's about realizing just how much we are loved and showing that same love to others. Starting with our brothers and sisters in Christ. When you and I show love, when we persevere in love, we are doing something that is and will be so utterly worthwhile. We are investing in eternity. We've come to the end of this letter. And as we finish, let's just take a moment to be quiet because it has been a long letter. It has dealt with just about every topic the church faces. So maybe you want to think just personally back over this letter, what you can remember of it, if you remember any of it. Think back over what you remember just for a moment and ask God what it is that you personally most need to take away from this letter. So let's do that and then we'll try to bring our time in this letter to a close.